We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Big Blue Banter, the answer to all your Giants matters, from run game to coaching to Bob Shepard's timbre. Hosted by Dan Schneier, analysis on fire. A Giants fan since day one, now preaching to the choir. Joined by Nick Filato, breakdowns with bravado. Passing you the facts like he passes on gelato. From just outside New York, a couple football dorks. A killer podcast when Dan says receiver corpse. They do the play-by-play, dropping almost every day. These experts know the X and O's just like Danny O'Shea. They do the review of the All-22, dissecting every throw. OCU Minora lit up Dan Venora when he was a guest on the show. So there you have it, a podcast for Giants fans who are rabid, who can't wait for Sundays, the NFC East, the Fantasy League standards. We'll see you back here. It's Big Blue Banter. Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Filato. And if my voice sounds any different to you tonight, it's likely because I spent a weekend at the Jersey Shore that was Quite taxing on the liver, as predicted, but an incredible time celebrating a really good friend and listener of the show, Dan Egero. He's getting married soon, so we had to send him out in his favorite place in the world, the Jersey Shore. But Nick, tonight we're going to talk about the Giants' third preseason game against the New England Patriots. Full half from the starters, they really let it rip. I mean, those starters were in forever, even after the Patriots had turned to Mac Jones, taking out a few of their starters. Uh, first, let's catch up. Nick, how was your weekend, man? I'll tell you a little bit after about this batch party. My weekend was filled with just working out these MRFs that I like to do in this Arizona sun, which is incredibly hot. And then just a bunch of football research and content preparing for fantasy football and just the start of the regular season for Sports Illustrated and Big Blue View. Nice. I like the fantasy angle. We got a draft coming up, which maybe we'll talk about on the Big Blue Banter podcast this week. Me and Nick will be in a dynasty auction startup draft. That should be a lot of fun. Guessing Nick was preparing for that because that one needs a lot more preparation than his normal fantasy leagues because he, quote, let's just keep this on the down low, but Nick tends to play against simpletons in his fantasy league. Let's just say that. <laughs> I would say they're, they're home friends. They don't take it nearly as seriously as you and I do. Yes, fair enough. That one trade you made last year, I'll never forget it. I think it was like Alvin Kamara for like, I don't even know. It was it was a tough one, Nick, but it was great for you. I think I traded three assets, but I definitely ended up getting the better end of it. Whenever you're trading in fantasy football, general rule that everyone should follow. If you're getting the one in the three for one deal, you're doing better there. But anyway, I'll give a little update on this batch party as my voice. I, I feel like I'm losing my voice, which is going to be tough to reel this off, but we're going to do it. 
get down there Thursday night, have a very nice dinner out there. So we made the decision, great call by Dan here, who basically planned his own bachelor party. <laughs> he took the reins um, instead of the best man to kind of plan his own bachelor party, which you know I've seen done before. It's not typically the best man does it as you know, probably 80% of the bachelor party has been on. But I have been on one before where the groom has basically organized his own bachelor party. And he made the great call. Instead of getting a smaller house in Belmar, we got this sick house in Point Pleasant right on the beach, step from the beach. So awesome house. Plenty of room for drinking games and activities. Barbecuing in the back. Crazy story happened with that, which we will talk about a little bit later, but hopefully it doesn't lead to you know, any kind of lawsuits. I don't think it would, but great bachelor party. We had an awesome day on the beach, Nick. And that one, boy, did I show out, buddy. I went five and oh, or was it five or six and oh in spike ball? Felt great. Just, you know, started the day off. Nice beach day, six and oh run in, in spike ball. Just an absolutely dominant performance. But I will give it to the groom because we did a beer Olympics and we made it to the finals, my team versus his team. And he hit those last cups himself and won the game and his team Took down Beer Olympus. And then the other weekend was just filled with a lot of the old school, like things I used to do when I was 25, Nick. Uh, DJs, Parker House, you know, going out to those places in the Jersey Shore. Very fun experience, nostalgic, flashback, throwback. I will say this, a couple funny moments that have to be talked about on the podcast because Dan himself would not like it if I didn't mention either of these two is my guest. And he deserves it because he's a great friend. So I will say that he's had my back, by the way, forever in this industry. Not only Nick coming up trying to do my own Giants contact, but he has had my back across the board. Fantasy, Giants, whatever I did. So first of two funny stories. We went to DJ's on Friday night, and it was a classic crazy DJ's night. Slammed about seven Red Bull Vodkas. Oh, disgusting. Filled with... I don't know, sour mix and whatever they call the Red Bull, which is not Red Bull. Tons of house liquor there. So I woke up with an insane stinger on Saturday. I could barely move when I first woke up. Knew I'd have that headache the whole day. So we went back to DJ's on Saturday. And it was after Parker House. Went to Parker first, and then everybody wanted to go to DJ's. And when we got to DJ's, I hadn't eaten dinner yet. We had just grilled at like 2 p.m. And I was like, I can't do another night without eating dinner. Because that was what happened the first night, Nick. And the biggest, for me, and throughout my life, especially as I get older, Nick, what leads to a hangover more than anything, it's when you don't eat. you got to coat that stomach. Yeah, people say, have a lot of water, stay hydrated. That's true, but you can't go without food. So I stopped and got food. And Dan still thinks it's the funniest thing. By the time I was done eating my little dinner there, I was planning to go to DJ's. The line was out the door around the back. I was getting texts from people like, wall-to-wall packed. You can't even move in here. Can't budge. I was dead sober at that point. And I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go to DJ's. So Saturday night, went home with one other kid on the bachelor party and kind of just waited, grilled a little bit. But that led to the next story. When they when everybody got back from the bar, I was trying to be the hero a little bit and went down with a couple other guys that went back early, Nick, and we said, you know what, we'll grill because everything was closed for some reason in that area. Domino's closed twelve p. after 12 a.m. You couldn't get any food. It was wild. And so we grilled, and crazy thing happened on that grill, Nick, which I can send you a couple pictures and videos of after because it was a wild situation where we got down there, and I guess what had happened was there's all pitch black at that point in the backyard. So we're grilling using just the flashlights of the iPhones to try to see things. And I guess what had happened with that grill is it hadn't been cleaned in a while before we got there. We've been grilling all weekend on it. And so a lot of grease had fallen to the bottom. And 
when we lit that grill up, man, and we put – and I think a part of the problem was Pippins. Got to give this shout because I do sort of remember this. He put all the burners up to full max high. And so it was me, my friend Pippins, trying to grill burgers, hot dogs for everybody. And we start to see a fire coming out of the back of the grill. We're like, uh-oh, this is not good. What is this? Let's let's. We knew it was bad at that point. We need to see how bad it was. Pop open the grill. Flames engulfing. By the way, it was incredibly windy, Nick. At this point, it was an insanely windy night Saturday, and all day it was insanely windy down the shore and by the right by the ocean, especially. And the wind just kept catching it, and it was like a massive, insane fire on that grill. And so everybody got to eat charbroiled pro- propane tasting burgers and dogs that night. It's wild that you guys drunkenly attempted to cook dan with the wind blaring and turning the burners all the way up and that you guys there was a lot of mistakes made unscathed i mean congratulations bro i'm just happy we didn't burn down the house because that thing was that fire was coming out of the back of that grill i was like holy shit this is not good um, but yeah, it was a crazy weekend. So I had to had to bring that up. One thing we didn't get to hit up was Triple Green, classic late night Chinese drunk food down in Belmar. It was closed at 10 p.m. I couldn't believe it, but great weekend. Let's talk some Giants football now because I actually ended the weekend by going up to the Met, to, to MetLife Stadium to the Giants game. Saw my first game live in a long time. I think last time I'd been here was uh, Daniel Jones rookie season for the two games, the Vikings I went to, and I covered the game for the Washington football game. I was working on the NFL side of CBS at the time, so I was credentialed for those games, worked in the press box, things of that nature, got some cool stories on the game. The first one was Jones's first home start against Washington, and it was a win, so that was awesome. But hadn't been back there in a while, so hung out there with a couple people from Giants Twitter, actually, Nick. Met up with Nicky, Snacks, BD. You might know him as Snacks. Yeah, uh, yeah, Snacks, I, I do. <laughs> Good guy. And then I met up with a very controversial Giants figure on Twitter who's actually a friend of mine off pod. And, you know, he gets a hard time on Twitter, but I like him. And that's 20. Uh, it's Will. I don't know what his name is these days. Like, he changes his name at all the time. Name changes are usually based around his hatred for the Giants' decision to draft Saquon Barkley, a running back with a number two pick, and for his hatred of Dave Gettleman. I think right now it's 27. Great guy, insanely passionate fan. Like, I get up at games. I used to be known in my section for getting up at games and riling the fans up, Nick, and trying to get fans up on third and down. But that was regular season games. I can never really get up for the preseason. This man was up for the preseason. He was riling his whole section up. Every, he was the mayor of the section. Everyone in the section knew him. He wears his perfect – I think he wears this to any game, let alone if the Giants are playing the Patriots. But he wears a Patriots jersey with the number 18 on it. And on the back, instead of a player's name, it says and one. So it just loves – I guess he just loves to troll those Patriots fans. That's good. Yeah. I mean, good for <laughs> good for Will. I, I haven't. Uh, I don't think I've talked to him on Twitter, but Snacks is somebody that uh, we follow each other, and he seems like an interesting character as well. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a funny fan. He was passionate as well. Uh, that shtick, that whole shtick of him being negative on Twitter, it carries over. He's, he's also you know a bit negative at the game, but also passionate. It's great. It's great to watch fans. In my mind, I always love watching passionate fans. But yeah, I got to see the game from that angle. Obviously took away a lot from the first half when the starters played more and then obviously they went to the backups. What did you let's let's start with you though, Nick. What were what was one of your key takeaways from the first half? I think we have to dive into the elephant that's in the room and that's the offensive line. First, I think we can even just focus on the offensive tackles because I 
I think it's safe to say we were we were concerned about the offensive tackles heading into the season, but we were probably more concerned with the interior offensive line. And in this game, and again, it's preseason. I don't want to overreact, but we haven't had a lot of live snaps that we've seen. So seeing these offensive tackles, all three of them struggle out there, is definitely concerning to me. Andrew Thomas just getting beat around the edge, giving up that half-man relationship that outside shoulder acting as basically a swing door for guys like Josh Uche just to run right through him. And it happened multiple times. And then you had Nate Solder getting beat inside for the one half sack as well. I think Nate Solder probably played best. And I haven't reviewed the all 22 yet, but just off the, off the just regular broadcast, it seemed like Solder was the better of the three tackles. And then Matt Pear also on the play where Daniel Jones overthrew Sterling Shepard in the end zone. Matt Pear, I don't even know what happened with his technique or what exactly happened. He only got two good looks at it, the replay and then actual live. And it just looked horribly, horribly from a technique standpoint. And it just really, really concerns me, man. I mean, this, this you're not going to have many more live reps. You Obviously, you have practice, but we talked about how this coaching staff had so much hubris about their ability to develop these young offensive linemen. And we actually, at least for Andrew Thomas's standpoint, were like, you know what? I think Thomas will figure it out. And he easily still could. But just off this one half of play, I mean, it was pretty darn ugly. Pressure, sacks, penalties, all of the above. That is not what you want to see from somebody that you need to take a step forward. Because if Andrew Thomas is anything like the 2020 first half Andrew Thomas, Giants are in some real trouble. Yeah, it's it's tough to watch that first half of football and get excited about the Giants offense, specifically about the offensive line, which at this point I'd have to say has probably risen to the top of my concerns over Garrett and Jones. Those are one, two, three for me. It's all across. And the thing is with these concerns, it's like one, two, three, and then it's a big drop off for the next thing I'm concerned about. Like after the offensive line, after Jones, after Garrett, I, I just don't have that many more concerns on this roster as it currently stands. But let's start with the line because that's what we're talking about here. And it's the number one concern. We can't, like you said, you can't have Thomas even. Thomas has to be a really good player for them this year if they want any chance to move the ball. I think you said it best, Nick. It's And it really does come down to move the ball because when you don't have a line, you just don't move the ball. Now, the same cannot be – it's not a guarantee. We saw the Chargers move the ball really well last year with an unbelievably bad offensive line, an offensive line that was incredibly injured in addition to not having much talent but then getting injured. But I just don't personally foresee Jones making those same kind of plays that Herbert was able to make. And so when you don't have a quarterback who's unbelievable out of structure or was at least playing at a high level, now he could regress, Herbert. He could easily regress. And same thing we saw from Burrow, who was kind of averaging, I think, close to like 300 yards a game with a bad O-line last year. But he was making a lot of plays, by the way, also himself. So when you're currently set up as is, you obviously need to have all the offensive linemen playing together. I don't think at this point... I feel too confident with any of the linemen except for Hernandez and Thomas. But like you said, I mean, will these X amount of reps by Thomas be more of an outlier or are these a sign of like, wait, maybe we should pull the brakes on us just assuming that what we saw from him in the first half of last season is completely gone because he is also changing line coaches. Again, it could be a good thing if Rob Sale is a great coach, but it's also uh, you know, a little bit of a, not setback, but he's probably being taught a few th- things a, few, a little bit differently than what he was being taught at times last year. And that to me doesn't concern me, but I just feel like he's probably hearing a lot. There's a lot going through his mind on each play. And and like you said, man, they need him. I, I, at this point, I feel probably most confident going into the year right now with Gates and Hernandez. 
Yeah, I would say I do as well, just because, I mean, Andrew Thomas hasn't inspired any confidence in us right now. If we're going to just call a spade a spade, he was wildly inconsistent last year, and he showed some signs of consistency down the stretch of the season. And you know what? His biggest struggle last year was getting beat inside. We talked about it ad nauseum, Dan. He got beat inside quite often in this game. It was protecting his outside, but there were other plays from 2020 where he was getting beat around the edge, similar to like he was in this game, specifically against the Bears in week two early on in his career. A lot of them were against Khalil Mack, some against, I believe it was Robert Quinn. And then also that Demarcus Lawrence sack was also around the edge that led to the fumble. Granted, Daniel Jones had a pretty deep drop on that, and he didn't step up into the pocket on that specific play. So we've seen this problem before, but it wasn't his main issue in 2020. Now, is this going to become the new issue in 2021? This is such a small sample size. I'm not going to be definitive with that. And I don't want to overreact, as I said before. But from everything we've seen so far, there's definitely concern with Andrew Thomas. I mean, that is not the first half play that we expected or hoped to kind of see, especially with it happening on multiple different plays, the same mistake happening several different times. And that is the same thing that we saw in 2020, Dan, only it was a different mistake. So, I mean, it's 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 not great. And then Matt Pear also did not inspire any sort of hope either. So it could be a really long season. And look, September 12th is not far, Dan. And you got Bradley Chubb and Von Miller coming in. That is very scary. Yeah, it is scary. And I think that ultimately... You know, we are scared of that, and we should be. And then Washington football team comes up right after that, which is another. Um, I think the Washington football team is a better line than Denver, honestly. Especially on a with, short week, too, man. Yeah, especially with Miller coming off the injury, um, Chubb as well. But, yeah, I think what we'll probably end up having to see there is a game plan similar to what we saw against Washington football team last year with a lot of design offensive design to kind of negate the pass rush and that's not what you want to see because while it might be the only thing you can do and i'm not saying it's not what you want to see in the sense of like if that's your best strategy okay fine i guess you have to do it but when that is your best strategy when your best strategy is curtailing your offense to avoid and to negate a pass rush's impact you know you have no chance at a ceiling game because you're not giving your offense much of a chance to reach its ceiling because you're game planning around that deficiency ultimately deficiency that's really important I don't know. I wish I could have more optimism here, Nick. I, it's so way too early in the season to have this kind of pessimism surrounding a unit that has so much importance on wins and losses like the offensive line group does. But it's just really hard right now to find that optimism. It, it truly is. And I, I have some ways, Nick, that will make me feel more optimistic. In my mind, it's possible the Giants can get in a nice running groove with Saquon Barkley. And with the, just, the run blocking to me still looks a little bit better. than the, Not a little bit. Obviously, a lot better than the pass blocking does. And so maybe they can kind of get into some kind of groove there with the running game and then come off the play action there, limit kind of how often they pass, which ultimately is limiting for your ceiling as far as your football team goes. But maybe that could lead to some grind out wins, some 17-13, some 13-10s early in the season to just try to get yourself on the board until your line starts to get a little bit better. But it's definitely hard right now with this offensive line playing the way they are to see a ceiling offense where they're taking multiple vertical shots and they're connecting on multiple vertical passing shots, even with Galladay, you know, even with Tony in the mix and all the weapons they added, which led you to believe during the offseason, like, hey, this offense could get dynamic potentially if Jones takes a big step forward. Right now, I think I'm putting that a little bit more on the back burner now nick and i'm looking at these first four five six games as like grind out type games like let's try to grind out wins like that seattle win from last year that's the 
style that they may have to employ a lot of quick game too it's going to be a lot of the slant flats probably a lot of those curls just a lot of quick game to get the football out of daniel jones's hand very fast to negate that pass rush as you said and that's only probably going to be heavily relied upon if andrew thomas matt parrott really continue to struggle if the interior offensive line is allowing interior pressure we'd hope that jason garrett would adjust and kind of throw more vertical shots as we saw in that kane smith touchdown up the seam to end the half, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. I mean, if we want to go in a positive direction here, that was a really, really nice bounce back from the offense to drive down the field that led to the 23-yard touchdown pass from Daniel Jones to Caden Smith. And I guess we can just transition right to Daniel Jones, Dan. I mean, he finished the game 17 of 22 for 135 passing yards. That touchdown and that interception, he had another ball that could have been intercepted, an out route to Dante Pettis that was way too far inside. It was not great ball placement but overall he showed resilience and he also showed the propensity to make those just frustrating type of mistakes now he shows these he also had a throw to i think it was dante pettis i'm not i think it was dante pettis from the far hash that was thrown on a line that was like wow that really came off his arm really really well i don't think that's consistent with all of his throws to be honest we've talked about the uh, lack of elite arm talent on this podcast and i think that is an astute point by us but there are some big time throws that he does employ sometimes that does that kind of gives me a a better feeling if he kind of puts everything together how do you though feel dan kind of after seeing Daniel Jones live right now, what are, what are your takeaways? I think there's a lot to unpack. I want to start by saying this because I did tweet about this and I got some feedback, so it could certainly look different on the TV. The ball he missed in the red zone on the fade to Shepard, from my angle live at the game, it looked like Shepard had a really, really nice release off the line of scrimmage, had a step, but not only had a step, had just insane amount of space between the pylon and where he was positioned to the point where like you could kind of just lay a ball up there for a touchdown. Was that pass just totally impacted by Parrott losing his, you know, losing the block early and Daniel Jones just not being able to really do anything there? Yeah, Parrott, that was the play I was referring to before where Parrott, I don't even know what technique he was trying to execute. It, it looked horrendous from the broadcast angle, and there was somebody basically draped on Jones, which led to Jones kind of throwing it a little bit early. I think that's what really messed the timing of that pass uh, up for Daniel Jones. The ball, okay, that that's fair. But the ball actually, did he get hit because the ball did not come out well? I'm not 100% sure if the contact hit him or if it was just about to hit him, but uh, that's, through, yeah. yeah, but it wasn't. Uh, think, it was not a clean situation. Yeah, I mean, listen. Here's the deal with Jones, and this is what it seems like live, in my mind at least. He did have a really good ball, like you said, to, to Slayton. Oh, I'm sorry, to Pattison. We saw that last year with Shepard too. I, I remember a route where he came back, went basically opposite field, and threw it on a line to the sticks, like ten yards. Uh, you know, 10 yards down the field, but a ball that actually travels 20 in the air based on where he's positioned and on the line. And obviously he still has the elite flash. Like the elite part of his game to me is how he throws those seam balls over the top. And some of his over the top passes uh, outside on the outside hashes, those though tend to me, those aren't perfect. Those I've seen under thrown a bunch. Those I've seen thrown a little bit too inside. 
a bunch. Honestly, the way his game is set up, like there should be more shots down the seam. Like it just has to happen if you're Garrett. You have to the way he like the ball he threw to to Caden Smith was in my mind his best ball. Like yeah, it wasn't the same kind of like it didn't generate the same kind of pop as that throw you mentioned to Pettis, but it didn't really need to. He put it in such a good spot, and obviously, which we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about the whole Evan Ingram injury and Caden Smith. Jumping in for him, Caden Smith made a hell of a play on that ball that I'm really personally not sure Ingram would have come down with based on what I've seen from Ingram in contested catch situations and situations where he has to adjust his body in the air, something he's really, really struggled with. But that's Jones's best ball. I mean, that ball was placed in a really good spot. It was basically outside shoulder, and it gave him a, a chance, to a really good chance to make that touchdown play. And so... I will say that. I will say this from watching Jones, both Joneses on the field, the ball did seem to jump a little bit more out of Mac Jones's hands. I'm just going to be honest with you. Not too much more, though. Mac Jones is not AAA plus talent, arm talent, but I was definitely impressed with some of the throws that Jones made just kind of with the with the, the way the ball got there and the timing of it. And I guess velocity is not the best word, but it's definitely it's, – it's probably cr- close to correct to what I'm saying here. But, yeah, I mean, with Jones, like you said – in the end, the arm talent is what it's going to be. It's not going to change too much. He does have flashes, though, but ultimately with what he has available, Nick, he just can't make the plays like he made in the red zone there on that interception, uh, thrown, I guess, in Ingram's direction. Now, some people are saying Ingram was supposed to sit on the route. I don't think we can take any of that with anything more than a grain of salt. And You could tell me if you feel differently about this, Nick, but no one on Twitter is going to know what route he was supposed to be running there. i got to be honest with you. Only the coaches and the players are going to know that one. Or if you know Ingram says something or Jones says something to the media. But to me, regardless of if that were the case, I think Jones just made a really bad decision. It was just personally late on the pass. Saw Ingram in his mind before he could get the ball out there, and by that time it was jumped. What did you make of that interception? I'm not 100% certain either, but I believe Jones said something along the lines that he should have thrown the ball away. And even if Ingram was supposed to to sit there, you're you're throwing a, moving against the grain of the defense with a bunch of pursuit defenders moving in that direction. It's still a, a risky throw. And I don't. I, I mean, I guess you could say Ingram would have been wide open if he sat there, but there was a linebacker crashing and a safety over the top, so it would have been a tight window throw. It's an aggressive yeah. take from Daniel Jones. And the issue with it is we've seen Daniel Jones make that mistake so much in the past and we nailed him for it on this podcast. We also saw Daniel Jones have a couple bad mistakes uh, where he held onto the football a little bit too long, did not throw the football to Devontae Booker, who was wide open on a little uh, in type of route and the pocket was collapsing and Jones just kind of hesitated a little bit, felt the pressure, then tucked the ball and fell and took the sack. But if he probably had maybe a split second to get rid of the football to a wide open booker right in front of him. And he just didn't on that play. And that's another thing that we've kind of seen where Jones holds on to the football a little bit too long. And when the pressure gets really, really close, he either tends to bail or he'll just eat it. And in that case, he did eat it. I would like to see him. And again, this is me talking, sitting on my couch, obviously, Dan, mm-hmm. I would like to kind of see him get rid of the football in that situation and have maybe just a little bit better of an internal clock there. Yeah, that's obviously something for him. There's also positives that I have. I mean, I thought he did a really, really good job on the first third and long that uh, the ball he threw out to Slayton, that Slayton dropped, which was a Mm -hmm. weird drop. I thought he did a great job of stepping up into the pocket there. That's something I've been wanting to see from Jones a lot, and that's something that I think he tangibly improved on in the second half of last season. Like That was 
in my notes consistently when I did the All-22 of that second half of the season. He did a much better job stepping into the packet, stepping up into the pocket, versus you saw a lot of times early on uh, on the film early in the season last year where when that pressure started to get there, he started to sense even the little hint of pressure. He'd start to move laterally to his side, and then he was never able to reset his feet to make a throw. In my mind, when you have his level of arm talent, which is about league average arm talent in my mind, capable arm talent, you need to get as many all, um, sorry, on-base throws in your game as possible. You do not want to be throwing too often for off-platform. You do not want to be throwing too often from an unbalanced base. And that I thought he did a much better job in the second half of last season. So it was good to see that. I thought that was definitely great. But like you said, I mean, that can only take you so far. The key thing here is he's got to speed up that internal clock. And I don't know. I am still of the of the belief, Nick, that it's not any kind of guarantee that that type of thing improves at this level. I think some of it is natural. I really do believe that. Now, as you start to see more defenses, start to kind of have more of a photographic memory of what you're seeing, you're playing these teams more often, it's obviously going to improve. But some of this, to me, is definitely a bit natural. Another play where Daniel Jones impressed me and showed something that I guess you could say we've knocked him for in the past, although I think he did a little bit better with this in the second year, is there was a blitz and he threw hot on that third and short to connect yep. to Evan Ingram. And Evan Ingram got down to about, you know, one the fourth and one situation where the Giants ended up, I believe, converting. And I think that was something else. He noticed the blitz that was coming from the backside, got rid of the football in a hot situation. And that's something that you want to see from a younger quarterback as well. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that was a good play. Let's talk about the third thing. So I think we hit the line. We hit Jones. Let's talk about our third. We really should just work our way through these almost every time from this point on because it's going to define the season. Daniel Jones, the offensive line, and Jason Garrett. So let's talk Jason Garrett. It's the preseason, so I'm not going to judge him too hard here anyway. But because I think if you're a good coach in the preseason, you're probably not scheming too much. You're kind of just running your vanilla playbook and trying to get live reps. But did you take away anything from anything you saw from Garrett? Jason Garrett, I mean, we've seen similar things. We know the Giants really like to get the football into a lot of different players' hands. They had the end around to Darius Slayton that picked up a couple different yards, had a lot of play action, play action rollouts with the H-back kind of coming across the formation to leak out into the flat. I think Jones connected with Ingram on one of those. And another one was actually, I think, the interception on the goal line. So there's a lot of similar type of concepts, quick hitting type of concepts. And I haven't gotten a chance to review the All-22 to really dive into it. So I'm just kind of speaking off of the broadcast angle as of right now. And then there was the deep shot that I did like to see from Jason Garrett. It was on a first and 10 in the second half from Mike Glennon on a cop route, which I'll go over here in a second, to David Sills that was just a bit overthrown. A cop route is a corner post route. So Sills, I believe, was the number two receiver. He sold the corner out really corner route really well, got the corner back, turned around, and then came back to the middle of the field. And I think it was a too high defense. The middle of the field was wide open because the route was so good and he sold it so well, but Glennon just overthrew it. And this is what I'll say about Jason Garrett, Dan. I think Jason Garrett calls those shot plays a lot on first down. He did it a lot last year, but we don't see it as often on those second and short type situations. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an excellent point. I'll go over in a minute what I liked and what I didn't like from Garrett, but I think what I didn't like really just fits into what you said. We talked a little bit about this before recording. It seems like he does an excellent job of understanding that 
you do need shot plays. You do need chunk plays to win in the NFL to some extent. I think he understands that. I just don't think he understands it, how the game has changed and evolved to the point where it should be prioritized at most times. But he does take them on first and 10 a lot. He will take them always on first and not always, but he'll take them often on first and 10. And he designed some really good plays. We saw it last year in the Steelers game. We'll I mean, we saw it throughout the season, a lot of good plays, chunk plays designed from the first and 10 spot. But I do believe that, like you said, once he gets in the second 10, if he misses that first down chance, he's never again thinking, you know what I could do here? I could try that again on second and 10 when they're expecting me to try to get yards to get into third and manageable. He's always turned the page immediately in his mind to how do we get to third and manageable? Here's my set of plays that can get me into a third and manageable situation. And that to me is a very detrimental way to call an offense. It's a philosophical issue. For me with Garrett, it's always been less about individual play calls here and there and always more about the philosoph- the way that he philosophically coaches an offense. And this goes to show, I mean, like, you saw it last year. Well, I'll go over this stat as many times as possible because I want to make sure everybody hears this and I want to make sure it doesn't get lost and I want to make sure you can quote this. But Mark Schofield, who came on our podcast a couple of weeks ago to talk quarterbacks and break down Daniel Jones' film, said that according to Sports Info Solutions, Jason Garrett called more quote-unquote on-schedule plays than any coordinator in the entire NFL. And on-schedule plays are designed to get you into third and manageable situations. But ultimately, what does that get you? If you string up five first downs but turn the ball over in the red zone, or if you string up five first downs but miss a field goal or even make that field goal after bogging down in the red zone where it's harder, it's just not enough to win football games consistently in today's NFL. The Bills, the Chiefs, the Packers – and uh, the Bucks were the four final teams last year. All teams were creating chunk yardage plays in the passing game and lighting it up on the scoreboard multiple times throughout the season, you know, majority of their games. And so that's always going to be my issue with Garrett. I don't think it was shown or not shown today. But one thing I did really like, because I do want to talk about what I did like, Nick, I love to design on the red zone play to Evan Ingram. To me, that's exactly more the one where Ingram caught the pass and was down at like the one. Um, and they tried to, they were thinking about reviewing it, but he was definitely down. To me, that's exactly more of what we wanted to, or what I, and I know you as well, have wanted to see from Garrett as far as red zone play calling, and just general play calling. On that play, there was a lot of misdirection. There was a lot of where will this ball go? Could it go here? Could it go there? And then it ends up going back to Ingram on kind of a play action roll to your right type throw where, you know, the defense's eyes could have gone in multiple directions before where the ball actually ended up there. That was one thing I definitely liked from, uh, from, from Garrett. One thing that, you know, it's not that I didn't like, I just expect to see more of. I know for a fact, Nick, when he gets into those second and third and short situations, he's not thinking chunk play. He's not thinking touchdown. He's thinking get the first down. And I think ultimately I want to see more of second and short, take a chance, you know, take a chance, even third and short, man. I remember during Eli's best years on those third and shorts, a lot of the time he would take shots downfield because that's one of the best times you can take shots downfield. Defense is sitting at the sticks and you know what? You can get a little bit of an edge, not a little bit of good edge on shot plays because the defense isn't playing them as they might on a first or, or as they may on a first and 10. So that's just more of what I would like to see. The catch-22 with this entire situation is one would surmise or imagine that Jason Garrett may take more shots if the Giants offensive line could block for longer. So both of those issues do kind of, I guess you could say, uh, they, they correlate with each other, which is unfortunate. Now, the Giants, who knows if the Giants would, but if the Giants had more consistent offensive line play, I would imagine that the Giants and Jason Garrett would call some more deep shots. It just sucks that the Giants are kind of in the situation where that could be hindering a play caller who is kind of 
universally known right now as being vanilla, even back when he was with Dallas. Dallas actually had a really, really stable offensive line. Yeah, I'm not I'm not as sold that if he had a great offensive line, he'd take more shots on those second and shorts. Or maybe on the second and shorts, but on the second and longs when he misses his first down shot play, I just don't think it really even matters for him. I think, again, it's less you know offensive line based for him, and, and he has a lot of track record to prove it. You just talked about his Dallas years. There's tons of data there that kind of backs this up, and then obviously his one season calling plays for the Giants, but you know... I think it's a mindset thing with Garrett. I really am convinced that on second and long, if he misses a first down shot play or if the run play doesn't go, he's really and truly focused on, and he goes right over to the plays in his playbook that can help him get into third and manageable, help him get that. Or, you know, sometimes I think he'll try to run plays on second and long that get him a first down, like 10 yards right to the sticks. That as well, uh, I think is in his arsenal there. But to me, it just seems more philosophical. It's why, you know, I I just probably won't ever get on board with Garrett, uh, regardless of where this goes. Now, I understand where you're coming from as well. I wanted to get your take on the offensive line for, for one second, something we kind yeah. of lost over that I think is important. Yeah. Nate Solder started this game. So we're hoping Shane Lemieux is back. Let's presume that Shane Lemieux will be ready in two weeks so we don't have to talk about Kenny Wiggins versus freaking Ted Larson. Oh, my God. Kenny <laughs> Wiggins and Ted Larson. I'm going to lose brain cells over the fact that those are currently potentially in position to be playing for the Giants in week one. Hopefully not. Hopefully and that's back. And that's with Lemieux as the starter, somebody we've both been talking about our level of concern with this entire offseason. But the Solder versus Parrot thing is interesting because Solder got the first two drives. He started the game and then they put Parrot in. We saw struggles from both, maybe a little bit more so with Parrot. But then in the vital two-minute drill, they had Parrot on the field and not Solder. Right. And then in the third quarter, we saw more Parrot, so more reps for Matt Parrot. Do you think Matt Parrot will inevitably start in week one? I think he will. If you had to good, you know, put me on the spot now, Nick, and make my prediction, I'm curious what you think after this. But I think that based basically on what you just outlined, the way that they played this game, Parrot being in the two-minute drill, Parrot getting more reps later on, I think he will start. But I think they wanted to kind of see, like, you know what? It's not a guarantee as much anymore. Let's kind of see what we have there um, in, in Solder potentially as a right tackle. Because you have to understand, like, not, and I'm not saying you, Nick, because you obviously understand. And no, I'm not trying to say anyone's asked to understand. I don't like how I preface that. I hate when people say that. But I'll back that up by saying the Giants haven't really gotten a good glimpse of what it's like to have Nate Stolder at right tackle, right? I mean, like, yeah, he's getting some practice reps that aren't really as, you know, dolled up as they may seem on Twitter. If you're reading reports and practice, they're not nearly what it's like to have a live rep. And so I feel like they kind of wanted to see, like, listen, if Parrot struggles early on, is it even doable to have Nate Solder at right tackle? Like, is it even a possibility? Because there's no guarantee at his advanced age, you know, with how he came in, into camp in my mind, he, he looked a little, you know, his frame looks a little thinner to me. It's fine. He's always been kind of a lengthy player, but he showed problems toward the end of his Giants tenure with bending, and that's been his game. He's six foot eight. He's a long tackle. And so I feel like it's possible, Nick, that they just kind of had to see, like, is this even a possibility? That's something that just goes back and forth in my mind. And I mean, there's a lot working against it, Dan. Nate Solder, we, last time we saw him was two years ago in 2019 where he wasn't good. Now you can point to, oh, he was playing through an injury. You're still talking about a player who is significantly aged at this point who may lack bend. And we're relying on Matt Pear if Nate Solder falls through. I think Matt Pear is going to get the first crack at this job too, but I can see week one, you know, 
Von Miller ends the first drive. Von Miller ends the third drive. Matt Parrott's on the bench and Nate Solder's in there. And that doesn't inspire any hope either. It's it just the entire offensive line situation. It's something we've been talking about for a while now, Dan. It's it's it could be a huge Achilles heel. And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast understand that. And I'll say this, Nick, I think you're on to something because we saw last year Judge had no hesitation to mix and match on the offensive line in game, in season, week to week. He didn't mind. There was no like set starters you're in. It was he was fine taking guys out for whole series. And so I don't think that will just, you know, be wiped out of his arsenal. And I will say this, Nick, before we move on from the offensive line, and we could talk about this a little bit when we go over the roster, so maybe I'll save it for that. But I'll I'll put this on everyone's radar and we'll talk about this when we project our fifty three men rosters. I think it's fair to say right now that at least as we stand now, at this point, two weeks from the start of the regular, from the Giants' first game, about two weeks from the start of the Giants' first game, it's fair to say in my mind, Nick, that this is as uninspired as I've been by a Giants offensive line heading into the start of the season as I was since 2017. Uh, right after the, or I'm sorry, 2018, after the Giants refused to sign Andrew Whitworth, rolled back with Flowers and Bobby Hart. Um, and that was kind of, and they, they had actually some decent, in my mind, a better interior than they might have going into right now, but hopefully by far worse tackles than what the Giants will have. We got to hope the tackle plays a lot better, but I think it's fair to say I'm as uninspired as I've been by that since that line. And it's tough when you, you when you see all the victory laps that people took about, uh, you know, the Dave Gettleman victory laps from this off season after they signed Kenny Galladay and Kyle Rudolph and Adoree Jackson. If this guy, if this line is as bad as it could be, Nick, he said four years ago that that's his number one goal. He's going to improve this line. He's going to fix this line. That's what he was, an O-line girl. And if the line is worse now than it was when he first got here, and that obviously now has a chance to be the case, it, it, it's it's a damning, you know, it's a damning mark on his tenure, to be completely honest with you, because it's not like he hasn't had an incredible, insane amount of capital. He traded away a star player in Odell Beckham and got what, two picks out of it and a young player. He also had a top, what, 11 pick and top 10 pick in every single draft since he got here. And he had supplemental picks. So, you know, it, it, it's a situation that's worth monitoring. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, we're all just kind of wrong and the offensive line is much better than we expect. And the run game helps it look much better. And Daniel Jones and Galladay help it look much better. But as of right now, Nick, it's it's tough to be inspired by this group. Yes, and all those things could happen too. It's not uh, out of the realm of possibility. It's just there's nothing that inspires us to to think that it will, essentially. Yep. All right, let's talk about what else we saw in this game. I liked what I saw from Dante Pettis. He continues to be a player that makes plays when he's on the field from a receiving standpoint. I know know, he may not be the same type of special teamer that some of these other guys are, but I think they kind of have their core special teamers that are going to make this roster. And so we'll talk about that in a bit, obviously, on the next show when we go over the 53-man. But I definitely like what I saw from Pettis tonight. I thought Pettis made some good plays. I wish he came down with the one in the third quarter on the sidelines. It it was a catchable ball, maybe a little bit outside of his frame, but something that he could have hauled in. And we've seen him play with the second teamers and the third teamers. The Giants are giving him ample opportunity to uh, try to win that last receiver spot. We'll kind of get into all this next podcast, like we said. But uh, Dante Pettis, if he doesn't make the Giants podcast, I do believe he will land on his feet somewhere else in the NFL. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, he does a really good job in my mind of getting open. That's probably what I think he does best. He's really has creates nice separation with his route running. And he's a pretty savvy route running. He's advanced from that standpoint. I'm a fan personally. I always have been. Uh, anything else in the offense you wanted to touch on? Any, any? I mean, I thought it was interesting. I expected, I predicted before the game that Gary Brightwell would get some reps with Daniel Jones. I was not surprised to see it. I think they wanted to kind of see what they would have there. Again, he continues to look a little. Uh, he has a little bit more juice somehow than what I saw on his tape at Arizona. Like, I feel like somehow he has more juice now, and maybe he lost cut cut his weight a little bit. Um, and has looked pretty natural as far as receiving goes. It's funny because I was actually that was who I was going to bring up, Gary Brightwell, because we saw him I think operate a little bit in two minute drill late in the second half, and he also played with the secondary pieces in the second half. I mean, late in the first half, yeah, he was running a first team with. With Daniel Jones, we didn't see as much Corey Clement in that role. We saw him in the second half, although Corey Clement had a couple insane jukes in this game and showed a lot of juice, which we know he's capable of displaying. But I think the Brightwell versus Clement, uh, I guess, argument is much closer than I originally anticipated, if I'm going to be honest. I wouldn't be shocked if if uh, Brightwell ends up making the squad over Clement because of Clement's fumbling issues that reared their ugly head earlier in preseason. Although I, if I'm a betting man, I'd probably go Clement, but it's much closer than I thought. And we'll save some of that for the actual 53-man roster pod before we get into the nitty-gritty of that. Let's talk a little bit about now what we saw from the first half defense and then what we saw from more of the kind of back-end players that played in the second half. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, Nick, how about that first team defense? Honestly, really impressed with the first team defense. I mean, I expected it. I went in thinking, but they were generating pressure without, you know, all of their guys, by the way. They will have more horses on the edge in the regular season, but the coverage was there. I like to play Darnay Holmes made on the football. It just seems like a nice flowing unit. I mean, I think 
it was best said, you know, we've talked about this before, but when you really truly think about how few, you know, broken tackle plays the Giants defense gave up last season, the one that comes to mind, like the only one that comes to mind was that Terry McLaurin pass where they kind of converged on each other. I mean, you could talk about the Cooper Cup one, but uh, the Rams kind of played a little quick game and caught the Giants off guard there. And that's kind of what led to that. And the Giants had, you know, subs at that point at the, at the corner position or at the position that was coming up to make that play. And they're a cohesive unit. They don't seem like a unit that's going to give up a lot of those after-the-catch plays and broken-type tackle-type plays where you make the, the missed tackle or you, 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 know, you step wrong. It seems like a really well-oiled unit. Kudos to, obviously, the coaching staff there, Patrick Graham. Kudos to Logan Ryan. Kudos to Blake Martinez, both guys who are kind of the leaders, the quarterbacks of that defense. Blake Martinez made an incredibly athletic play on the interception as well. That was awesome to watch live, like truly incredible to watch him go up and get that live. And a man coverage play, we always talk about, you know, he's better in zone, he's better in zone, but he was on his man there. Um, and so, you know, I was really impressed with what I saw from this first half defense. Obviously, it's the, it's the Patriots, not a world-beating offense, but still impressive. I was a little nervous when Damian Harris ripped off an 18-yard run on the Patriots' first drive. I was like, ah, crap, that's not something we're used to seeing. But you're right, the defense clamped down after that. And we saw a lot of interesting things. I think Patrick Graham showed that he was not afraid to call some more um, unique types of coverages in the preseason. I mean, we saw stuff like a a gap plug, which is just middle linebacker blitz from Blake Martinez to put pressure on Cam Newton. We saw a play, a lot of man coverage, by the way, we saw, which I love. A lot of third down man coverage on the third and seven on the Patriots' first drive. We saw a man across the board with Logan Ryan being a trapper on that number two wide receiver coming off the scene. Logan Ryan, if you watch the broadcast, you saw him step down really quickly to kind of rob that number two receiver coming across and just kind of totally eliminated him from the play. And then Rodarius Williams was actually on the boundary providing really good coverage on Nelson Aguilar. So early on, you saw some unique type of play calls and you brought up the Blake Martinez interception that looked like it was a boundary cornerback blitz at least that's what it appeared like on the one time that I got to get my eyes on it before we recorded this podcast it seemed like James Bradbury was coming in and then the two safeties took the deep half responsibilities leaving the middle of the field open sort of like a Tampa 2 type of look where the linebacker drops to an insane depth to overcompensate for the middle of the field being open. Blake Martinez was the one carrying a wide receiver up that fought for the football and ended up coming down with that athletic interception. And a lot of people knock Blake Martinez for not being a coverage type of linebacker. That was a coverage type of linebacker yeah. play right there. Yeah, man. He's really, it's fun watching him. He's evolving into just in overall, one of the best linebackers in the NFL in Patrick Graham's defense. It's such it's such a funny situation because it's like he was obviously a good player with the Packers. There's no denying that he was a good player with the Packers, but there's also no denying, if you're going to be honest about the situation, that he's a much better player with the Giants and Patrick Graham's system. And this is a good you know case to be made for some of the guys that I like heading into this year, like you know Sterling Shepard, who I think has an actual chance to break out this year. Like No one thinks like it's possible to break out after this many years in the NFL. But in my mind, it took Blake Martinez five years to become the, the player he is today. Like He was just not this player in Green Bay. Part of that may just be simple. Like he just was out of the, he was in a scheme or in a system, I'm sorry, that didn't fit his skill set as well. That's possibly part of it. But I think part of it is just him coming into his own as a player and taking all the things he's learned along the way to become a better player. And I think the player he is now is one of the best linebackers in the NFL. Cause if he's getting things, if he's making plays like the one he made tonight in coverage, there's just not a hole in his game. 
no, there's not a lot of holes in his game if that's going to happen. And we speak a lot a lot of praise on Blake Martinez, and I think all of it's warranted. He's one of my favorite acquisitions the Giants have made in several years, to be honest. And we also saw, dude, a lot, like I said, a lot of man coverage. We saw a lot of blitzing as well, a lot of five-man pressure packages coming from the slot, from the cornerback, from the linebacker. So we'll love to see that. But speaking of the linebacker position, we saw Tay Crowder make a really impressive fill, and we saw Carter Coughlin playing next to Blake Martinez on first-team defense. What would you make of that, bro? That was the big thing. I think that was one of the biggest takeaways from defense. At first, it's funny. I was sitting with, I talked about it earlier, a few guys from Giants Twitter, and we thought we spotted Sam Beal early on with the first team defense. said obviously he wasn't there, but Darius Williams actually got a lot of burn, which we should talk about. But one of the coolest things was definitely seeing Carter Coughlin on the inside there with the first team. I mean, this is something we've talked about. Will it happen? When will it happen? Is it possible that it happens? And that's just such a crazy steady drumbeat for this guy. We're talking about somebody who caught us by surprise when we first saw during mini camp, uh, you know, or way earlier in the offseason. Like, wait, Carter Coughlin's taking inside linebacker reps? We're like, both kind of just like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. It's like one of those like unique developments you get with your team. Like, what? What? Okay, this is – I can in my head kind of envision how this could be pretty damn awesome. And then, like they said, the steady drumbeat, it continues to get better and better. He's now getting reps in training camp. He's now getting reps in the joint practice. And now we see it in the third preseason game, the dress rehearsal. So, you know, some call it for the regular season. And it's, you know, leading me to believe that it's definitely a possibility early on in the season. Like, we could start to see him out there in packages over guys like Crowder, over guys like Raglan. Yes. And, I mean, if you want an athletic type of player out there, I think Carter Coughlin, there's an argument to be made that he's a better athlete than Tay Crowder. And he's definitely a better athlete than Reggie Raglan. Because, yes, this guy played edge. But, remember, I mean, he's a quick SOB, Carter Coughlin. And I think it's very interesting that they were using him on the first team. I actually like it. I think it was by design because they want to see how he holds up and to see if he can actually take significant snaps there. During the season, if injuries happen to Tay Crowder or Reggie Ragland or Blake Martinez, they could probably, I mean, the amount that he's proven at the linebacker probably leads to Devontae Downs not making this squad, which probably will bode well with the Giants fan base, if we're going to be completely honest. And then uh, the Giants also got four sacks, which was pretty awesome. I think it was uh, Trent Harris, uh, Dexter Lawrence had one. Uh, Lorenzo Carter had another and then Willie Henry. So it's good to see some pressure from the Giants and a lot of some of them were on four man pressure packages, which you'd love to see. Yeah, and I think that's definitely awesome. I wanted to make one more point on something you said that I think is good to build off of. I think when Giants fans hear the name Carter Coughlin, they don't actually think of him as much of an athlete, but he is truly an incredible athlete. I tweeted this out back in April 20, uh, you know, April of 2020 after they drafted him. I said it was no surprise the Giants drafted Carter Coughlin. Guess what his 10-yard split was? 1.54, 99th percentile. Remember Ryan Connolly had one of the best off-ball linebacker 10-yard splits in 2019, one of the best in the last 10 years at the time. Coughlin rivaled that with his 99th percentile 10-yard split. Like you said, Nick, it shows his athleticism, but it also shows what you want from those inside linebackers, quickness. You need, quickness, in my mind, 10-yard split is probably one of the best uh, measurements for that position. And he was also 92nd broad jump. 73rd percentile in the vertical jump, 87th percentile in the 40-yard dash, and you know, 80th percentile height. Like he was a pretty damn good athlete, low-key under the radar coming into the NFL. He absolutely was. And I've watched more Golden Gopher film than I'd like to remember from some of those Carter Coughlin days because I used to write and cover that team 
for uh, for rivals. And uh, <laughs> I was really impressed with him. And I honestly thought he was going to be a much higher pick than he was. But his uh, last season, his senior season, was kind of underwhelming. He didn't have the statistical output that a lot of people envisioned. So he just ended up falling. That and because he also has like 31 inches. The arms, yeah. yeah. I think part weird. of that, though, is like what you said, Nick. Like, is it possible that that's how you find gems? Like, this is a guy who maybe was not a fit. He was a tweener, not a great fit for the NFL at the edge position he had played because like you said, the fall off in that senior season, the lack of arms, but you find a new position for him that maybe better fits his skill set, and maybe you unlock a player here. I really think it's possible. I'm very high on Coughlin going into the season. Yeah. I mean, Joe Rossi used him in a, he was the defensive coordinator for university of Minnesota, used him in a, a lot of unique ways as well. A lot, a lot off the edge, a lot of stunts, a lot of slants, taking advantage of that quick first step. So, I mean, it's good to see that uh, he's landing on his feet here in the NFL for sure. I also want to uh, touch on CJ board for a second. And um, the fact that he was handling kick return and punt return abilities, and he looked pretty mm-hmm. solid doing so. Do you think, cause I mean, I don't really have a beat right now on who's going to be the punt returner and the kick returner. Do you think CJ board making this, if he makes this roster will earn both of those roles and then Jabril peppers, they'll just worry about him on defense. I think they haven't given much information about either's roles either. So I'm, I'm not surprised that we're kind of both in the dark on this. I think it will evolve. Like it's possible he'll start the season in that role, but I don't think it, it's locked in at all. The Giants did mix and match a lot in both of those roles last season. I don't think that's too uncommon for most, you know, NFL teams these days. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll probably just go with maybe he'll start there, but I don't. I'm not sold that that'll be kind of where it ends up. Yeah, I think that's a very fair take. And another special teams guy I want to talk about that I think is a one of the more underrated players on the Giants' defense is Julian Love, who had a big special teams tackle mm-hmm. and also had a big PBU where he reacted so quickly to, I think it was an in-route by a tight end, and the tight end just quickly turned, showed his hands to the quarterback, the quarterback fired, and Julian Love just used that lower body explosiveness to jump into the throwing window and knock the pass away to force a punt. I mean, the more the more in the preseason that I get to see Julian Love, and yeah, it's the preseason, a lot of this preseason games he's been playing against second stringers. But even when he's out there against those second stringers, you could tell he's just a different type of guy. I think he's going to be one of those players that the Giants use in a lot of different roles, which we brought up before on the podcast. And I think he's going to have a, a, a pretty solid role here in this 2021 Patrick Graham defense. Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, he like you said, he's just a kind of a jack of all trades, and that's something they like. We saw how much they kind of prioritize that. I don't want to say that's the only reason. Obviously, what he was able to do from a mental standpoint is a big reason the Giants loved Logan Ryan, put him ahead of a lot of people who had already been on the roster for contract extensions. But when you kind of have that versatility in a defense like this that is in its nature just based on being versatile and being able to fill a lot of different roles for your defense – you're going to move up the, you know, you're going to move up the depth chart. You're going to move up the pecking order, I should say, for the coaching staff. And, and you're right, man. I mean, he produces. He's produced in a lot of different roles here. I didn't love him when he was stuck in that high safety role. I don't, ultimately don't think that's the best fit for him, but he can play it. And he could, he's kind of shown at least from a base level, he can play at, at worst kind of average at any position they've tried him at. And that's what you're looking for for your backup, somebody who is versatile enough to step in if one of your starters end up going down. He may not be great at any one thing, but he's average to above average at a lot. And I think those are valuable kind of role players, I guess you could say, what you need in a defense like Patrick Graham that uses a lot of different sub packages and things like that. Also, Dan, we should probably touch on these injuries, man. Uh, Evan Ingram and, and Darius Slayton now, it seems like Joe Judge said that they're optimistic about the injuries, 
but there's going to be tests, more tests tomorrow. They're going to see the doctors, the team doctors and everything like that. You hate to see that in the last preseason game. Let's hope this calf injury for Evan Ingram and this foot or ankle for Darius Slayton isn't serious, but to, to kind of, and luckily there's two weeks before the first game against the Broncos. But what do you make of the uh, injuries if they actually end up being a little bit more grim than what's anticipated? Yeah, it's hard to know what to make of them. I will say this. I saw Pat Trana, who I know you work with at times. She tweeted out that she didn't love the body language that Ingram had after the injury. Yeah, that's kind of often, in my mind at least, telling of what the injury will be. If the, if a guy's got bad body language, is kind of pissed off at the injury. It's usually not a great thing. Obviously, Joe Judge is going to give coach speak. He's a he comes from that Patriots, uh, you know, cloth, and he's he's taught. You know, I even saw something this week about how he would just get these like awesome private personal coaching sesh training sessions with Belichick, just you know, divulging him all the secrets. And you know, one of their tricks of the trade is don't give up anything to the media. Uh, you know, always talk up your opponents, make them don't give them any bulletin board material. If anything, do the opposite, make them too confident going in. And so, I don't really trust any of his coach speak when it comes to injuries i think even if you look at last year a lot of the injuries that were supposed to take less time to to come back from took a little bit longer so it's impossible to know at this point but uh, i mean that leads me to my next point when it comes to that situation something we didn't talk about but as it relates to evan ingram less so to darius slayton we'll have to see what happens there but you hope that worst case scenario one of the guys who makes the roster on the back end whether that be pettis or sills can kind of play outside if they need him to on the boundary but as far as ingram goes i mean it leads me to my next question which is oh man nick are the giants a better team with caden smith out there on the field than evan ingram is that crazy thing to even ask at this point uh i kind of think it is at this point and i know there's a lot of fanfare about about caden smith evan ingram can be a difference-making athlete, but the mistakes that he makes are something that you're going to have to kind of factor into the equation when overviewing this question between Evan Ingram and Caden Smith. But I do believe just how the Giants ran their 2020 offense in 2021 can be different. Caden Smith had a defined role in that offense that was different from what Evan Ingram was doing. So if you remove that role, someone's going to have to step into that role in order to have Caden Smith fill Evan Ingram's role, which I do believe is more of the move tight end, big slot type of player, which we have seen him be utilized in. Although the mistakes that he made in 2020 were far too frustrating to kind of lead you to believe that he can be a more consistent player. If you can limit the mistakes, you can unlock that rare type of athlete at the tight end position that we thought we were getting back in 2017, but it just has not necessarily transpired on the field. But I'm not going to go as far to say that having Caden Smith out there in the Evan Ingram role makes the Giants offense a better offense, but I do believe it's an interesting point. I would like to see Caden Smith use a bit more as a receiver something we did not see enough in 2020, but that's because he has that defined role as the as a blocker and as that puller on the counter play that we talk about so much. Yeah, I think for me, Nick, it's a little bit different than your take because I I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I don't think that, Evan, uh, that Kyle, I'm sorry, Caden Smith is better in the Evan Ingram role than Evan Ingram is. But I just think ultimately a good coach doesn't worry about fitting pieces into your, you know, fitting round, 
pegs into your square holes or fitting square pegs into your round holes, I think is the actual term, as we like to say. I think the good coach is changing his offense when he has a Caden Smith and versus Evan Ingram. I also don't think the Evan Ingram role as it is in this offense is a good role. I don't think it's a well-designed role by Jason Garrett. I stand to this day, think like Evan Ingram could be a lot better in a different offense and one that utilizes his skill set better, but I'm not convinced this is that offense. I'm not convinced anything's changed with that regard. So to me, I feel like the Giants are potentially a better team with Caden Smith on the field than Evan Ingram. Caden Smith is a better blocker. I think Caden Smith has more natural hands. I think all he's done is put up numbers as a receiver when he's gotten opportunities. He doesn't get them often, but when he does, he makes a play like he made today. And I'll be honest with you, Nick, I said it earlier in the pod, I'm not convinced Ingram comes down with that football. One of his worst traits, or not worst traits, but a below average trait for him is his body control in the air. A below average trait for him is his concentration. That required great concentration, great body control in the air. All things that Caden Smith has displayed when given the opportunity. We saw him make a couple really nice plays up the seam in 2019 during those final you know, four or five games, whatever it was, where Evan Ingram was injured. And so when it comes to the blocking, the frame, what he's shown as a receiver, I know he doesn't have the speed. I know if it's a perfect scenario and you have a really good offensive play designer and play caller, Ingram certainly gives your offense more upside. But I just don't feel like the Giants have any of that with Jason Garrett. I don't think there's any proof that they do. I think it's all speculation to say that they could. Um, and so, you know, I, in my mind, as where they stand right now as an offense, I'm, I'm starting to lean that, like, Hayden Smith is better to have on the field. Evan Ingram in the 2020 Evan Ingram role is not what I was talking about. It's more that should be the Kyle Rudolph role, especially on the spacing type concepts, the quick curls back to the vertical breaking routes that turn back towards the the quarterback. That's not what Evan Ingram should be doing, and he shouldn't have been doing that last year. That probably would have fit Caden Smith maybe a little bit better, but using Evan Ingram's athletic ability and trying to create mismatches is something that I hoped to envision in 2021. I'm not sold that that's what we're going to see. I think that addition of Kyle Rudolph, if healthy, and I've said this since the Giants signed him, could be a really low-key signing, which I feel like you and I are different I don't know if we're on – are we on different sides there? I know you um, – No, no, no. I like Rudolph if he's healthy. Yeah, I, the over. reason I don't like that signing is because you're signing someone who's going to have surgery after you sign him, and it's a Liz Frank surgery, one that we have more and more medical evidence on that takes a year to recover from. And that just speaks, dude, to the tight end position right now and how precarious it is because Caden Smith is the only person right now who was projected to make the roster by a lot of people who cover this team that is – I guess you could say 100% healthy and up to speed because we don't know what's happening with Evan Ingram right now. Kyle Rudolph just was removed from the pup. And then you have a guy who I think I called Stuart Griffin on this podcast before in Nakia Griffin-Stewart, who might have to be pigeonholed into this roster if there's something wrong with Evan Ingram. So it, that's another low-key concern of mine with this offense is this tight end position, especially with the proclivity of Jason Garrett running those 12 and 13 personnel packages, which we've seen all throughout this preseason. Right. We've still seen so much of it. And that's kind of what comes back to me, like our discussion before on Ingram versus Smith. It, ultimately, for me, the answer is neither. The answer is have Kyle Rudolph on the field and run a lot of 11. Stop running as much 12. Stop running these personnel groups. It doesn't fit the way to win in the NFL today, especially not when you have Kadarius Tony draft in the first. I know he's not up to speed yet, but ultimately, like to me, a healthy Slayton, Shepard, and Galladay 
is probably better than having either Ingram or Caden Smith on the field. Or sometimes you want to, you know, give Rudolph a breather. You put in Ingram there, or you, which I don't even like, or you put in Smith there. But the, the 12 personnel to me is just not a way to maximize this offense. So ultimately for me, I guess the answer is neither when it comes to Smith or Ingram, or it's less of both. Now, I understand where, where you're coming from 100%, and it all comes down to the mistakes. I mean, we have a mistake-prone quarterback, and then you compound that with an offensive line that right. has a lot of mistakes, and then a tight end who has a lot of mistakes. I mean, that is a mistake-prone offense right there, 120%. How are you going to win football games like that, especially with a play caller who doesn't maximize yards after catch, doesn't really take too many explosive shots downfield? I mean – this offense, man, it's 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 going to force me to rip my long hair out, I think. Yeah, hopefully not on that standpoint. And just one last thing on Ingram because it's interesting. I, I've, I guess over time, Nick, I've started to be less certain that there are – I know the idea is let's get him in, in mismatch situations. But I'm starting to wonder over time like what those situations are if they're not vertical design plays like the smash route concept, which I like from him and things of that nature, or horizontal breaking stuff, like a late, you know, drag where you're kind of dragging to a side of the field where everyone's vacated. Because one-on-one matchups with him kind of like beating a linebacker on a slant or in and out or like kind of a two-way route, I just don't think he cuts well enough to really be a mismatch. I know he seems like he should be a mismatch because of his weight and his speed timed on paper and his height. I know it all seems like it on paper, but when you kind of watch the film, and I know you're, you know, I'm not saying you would say, you're saying the opposite. We've both kind of seen him struggle to make moves as a route runner and have the route running savvy or just have the, you know, agility, the quickness, whatever it is to make those cuts and get open. They make him a mismatch, really, on anything but vertical and horizontal breaking stuff. That's kind of where I'm starting to struggle when it comes to Ingram. Yeah, and I think it's a very good point as well. It's something we've definitely pounded. Uh, about in the past, I mean, just 90 degree cuts is what he struggles with. It's when he has to kind of decelerate with his momentum because he is very fast and quick. It's when he has to decelerate, sink his hips, and then explode out of a break. He has all the athletic elements, but I don't feel like his deceleration and ability to kind of keep that 90 degree cut square and then quickly turn his body. And then then you have to go into the whole, can he locate the football and bring it into his body, which is something he definitely struggles with as well. All those things, I mean... It uh, it kind of leads him to being a much more limited route runner than his potential would suggest. I guess is a good way that we can probably frame that. But I can see Evan. I know we've talked about this in the past as well, Dan. I can I know Evan Ingram. If he departs the Giants, he's going to mm-hmm. he's going to be a good football player for them, and that is going to piss off the Giant fan base so much, rightfully so. Yeah, I, I guess I'm a little. I, I think it's possible, but I'm definitely a little less convinced than you are on that. I just have, I've went, and I know it's definitely possible. There's so many people out there, yourself included, who, and I, I see it. I get it. I totally get that it's in the range of outcomes. But I guess I'm just less certain that it's going to happen. I, I grow less and less certain of Ingram as an actual good football player the more I watch him versus just kind of an athlete that should be good at football. I think he is. I still think he's that, an athlete that should be good at football. But I think other coaching staffs, and I know the Giants have had three, will be able to unlock that athlete more than the Giants have. And I know we've had three coaching staffs in here through Ingram's tenure, but he was also dinged up a bunch through uh, the McAdoo and the Pat Shermer right. era. And then his only healthy season was last year in a Jason Garrett offense that didn't necessarily fit his skill set as well as, say, someone like a Kyle Rudolph or possibly even a Caden Smith, as you brought up. Yeah, for sure. Definitely better. I just, 
I don't know. Ingram's a weird one. It's 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 hard to know, and I think we're going to find out at some point because I don't really foresee the Giants resigning him next offseason with all the other players they have to resign and the cap space they've already allocated from future to this season, which I, again we've all been fine with. I'm a big believer in that style and that strategy, but it does lead to some more difficult decisions down the line. Ingram probably being one of them. We'll see what happens there. Uh, anything specifically that you took away from uh, anything else in the first half or do you want to turn over to the second half when we saw kind of those back-end roster players fighting for roster spots? I think we're good on the first half. We talked about all the major talking points. Sure. So what did, what did you take away from kind of those back-end guys fighting for roster spots in the second half? Back-end roster guys, I mean, we saw Sam Beal make a really impressive tackle in run support. Uh, to I think it was on the two point conversion when the score was twelve to seven. He came up and hit Ramondre Stevenson, who is a pretty darn big beast out there to hit. And Sam oh, Beal yeah. is not a big guy, so I thought that was impressive. And man, I, I don't want to get too much into this because we're going to talk about this on the uh, on the on the sure. show that's going to come out shortly after this one, projecting the fifty three man roster, but. I viewed Marjorie Harper in this game, somebody who I think is on the fringe of making this roster, and he's just getting beat in man coverage and, and making a lot of boneheaded mistakes. I, I just think that last cornerback spot is very, very interesting right now. And uh, we also saw Rodarius Williams, even in the second half, still in the game, forcing incompletions to uh, on undrafted uh, rookies, guys like that Zubar guy, who is a wide receiver for the Patriots. But it still was good to see Rodarius Williams get his hand in there and knock Mac Jones passes away. Because Mac Jones, as you said before, actually looked pretty darn good when he was in there. So I would say that... Uh, those are probably little things to take away. It's just the cornerback room is a little bit more interesting, I guess, than I thought. But I don't know if interesting is even a uh, a good thing because with the, with the Adore Jackson injury, and I know he's more than likely going to be ready for week one, It's uh, if that injury was a little bit more serious, and even without that injury being serious, I look at that back end of the cornerback room and uh, not, I'm not in love with it. And that was a position group that we thought we were going to be really strong with when we suspected Aaron Robinson to be fully healthy. Yeah, I mean, now he's likely to start the season on the pup. I think he'll pretty quickly get that roster spot back when healthy. Who knows when that is, though? I mean, now he's kind of far behind just on everything, learning that it could be a tough rookie season for him. A little bit of bad luck there for the Giants. They've really seemed to get just wild amount of bad luck with this rookie class so far, as far as just not being on the field to help them make a week one impact. Tony, you know, Robinson, really, even Aziz at times hasn't been able to get and stay on the field. And then Ellerson Smith, another guy who's had it all wiped out, essentially, this this start to this rookie season. So definitely something to look at. The cornerback depth, as we'll get to on the 53-man roster prediction show, not, you know, the, the outside corner depth still needs work. And it's, that's why I'm so happy the Giants continue to invest there because that's a position you should always invest in. I thought second half, some interesting takeaways were kind of some of the plays that, like players like Damian Willis and Alec Bachman, just back end roster receivers fighting for that spot. Will they get it? It's going to be really interesting to see how the receiver core shakes out because as we'll go over later, I think the Giants are going to keep fewer receivers than other people think. I think that will mean a lot of these guys kind of get sent to the practice squad or, or, or you know, moved on from altogether. Anything else you had or wanted to touch on from uh, those back-end guys in the second half? Well, Mike Glennon doing his best Aaron Rodgers on that 43-yard Hail yes. Mary to Damian Willis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that was a, it was an exciting end to the game. They went for two, and Glennon ended up kind of overthrowing Dante Pettis on that look-like little fade type of route, which is a low percentage type of play. But, I mean, you know, you definitely obviously um, – 
was pretty fun, exciting way to end the preseason. Giants end up going 0 three in the preseason. Let's hope they don't start this regular season three and zero when they actually have their starters playing full time. Or Owen three, yeah. not three. Yeah, Owen three. I know you know, it'd be amazing <laughs> if they somehow started three and zero. That would be excellent. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make too much. I know you're not either. But we, we obviously are not going to make too much of the record in the preseason. No, no. It's what it is. They didn't even play Jones until this game. So exactly. definitely an interesting preseason. This is one of the most interesting preseasons I can remember. The Giants, the starters played fewer snaps this preseason than I can ever remember. So it was really hard for me and my mind to glean much. The only real takeaways I had from this preseason is, boy, does this offensive line scare the hell out of me. That's like my main takeaway. Everything else I don't feel like we've learned. I didn't really feel like I've learned anything new yet with Jones, to be honest with you. I think it's a lot of vanilla play calling. I don't think they want to give away too much there. Um, and then the defensive side of the ball, like it looks good. It looks in sync and tune, but there's nothing too new I feel like I've taken away. But Definitely, like you said, I mean, the offensive line, that's the key takeaway right now. Like, we're coming in a little scared, let's be honest. Yes, and then obviously a lot of these guys don't play as much because of these joint practices, and we get some footage of that, but not all of it. So that's one thing that's frustrating as a fan, sure. but at least they're still getting live reps. Yep. All right, we're going to wrap it up there for the quick recap. Quick takeaways, I just say, recap of the Giants preseason game. Obviously, it wasn't that quick, so quick is not a good word to put over a podcast that spans over an hour long, but... Hope you guys enjoyed this one. We'll be back talking with you soon to break down the Giants 53-man roster, or at least our projections and our predictions for the Giants 53-man roster. No new uh, reviews on iTunes, no new questions from the listeners. We've got nothing to read there, or at least iTunes, which sucks at this, hasn't done a great job of updating that. But if you did leave a question on your review for the iTunes podcast uh, or for our iTunes page, just know it will be definitely read on here and responded to once we get it through. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.